You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In speaking of medieval education, it's important to have in mind the setting in which it occurred. And we've seen at its beginnings, as it moves off from the time of Boethius and Cassiodorus and Ator, it is localizing itself in the monasteries. And we mentioned or gestured in the direction of a mention of the political and social conditions which made that perhaps inevitable. But in the monastic setting, the liberal arts preserve themselves as a kind of remnant, these fragments we've shored against the ruin of pagan philosophy. If you and I look at the seven liberal arts divided, as you know, into two groupings, the trivium and the quadrivium, grammar, rhetoric, and logic, the three arts of the trivium, and the quadrivium, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. When we look at those and then we think of the totality of Plato's writings or the totality of Aristotle's writing, this will seem like a very thin portrayal of what these men had thought of as the scope and extent of philosophy, as indeed it is. And it's not until the recovery of knowledge of these men in their completeness that it will be seen how much of a fragment the liberal arts are. But nonetheless, they were, for all practical purposes, secular education. These represented the achievements of reason through much of the Middle Ages, what I'm calling the early Middle Ages, that is up to the year 1200. The way in which the arts were studied is, of course, important as well. There were certain authors, octores, and works which were associated with each of the arts. And what the scholasticus or schoolmaster did was, in effect, to give a explanation of the text of the work which stood for grammar, let's say, or a logical work of Aristotle, uh, rhetoric, and so too with arithmetic, music, and the other. And it's an interesting study in itself to see what authors and books functioned within that curriculum. But what was produced by this mode of teaching were commentaries on these fundamental works. And perhaps the practice of Boethius had its great influence here. I mentioned that after he had translated logical writings of Porphyry and Aristotle, he then produced commentaries on them, explaining this is what the text means. And this seemed right to his successors in the Middle Ages, and they produced, as they did on Scripture itself, and had been done from time immemorial, they produced commentaries on these works of the liberal arts. The commentary of Boethius on Porphyry had another very profound influence on medieval education. In the course of talking about what are called the five predicables that have to be understood before one can understand the ten genera that include the totality of things that Aristotle lays out in the categories, the predicables that Porphyry talks about in his introduction to the categories are what? Genus, species, difference, accident, and property. And as he sets these forth and is about to discuss them, giving them definitions that would have a long and noble history in medieval logic, Porphyry alludes to a difference that arises between Platonists and Aristotelians on the logical status 
of these entities that he's going to talk about, genus, species, and so forth, the universals. Huh? And what Porphyry said is this, the question arises as to whether they're real or merely figments of the imagination. And if they're real, whether they're corporeal or incorporeal. And if they're incorporeal, whether they are associated with bodies or separated from them. Those three questions, and you can see how each question presupposes a certain answer to it. The second presupposes a given answer to the first, and the third a given answer to the second. Those three questions constitute what comes to be called by historian the problem of universals. And insofar as Porphyry became one of the set pieces of medieval education in the early Middle Ages, we get commentary after commentary on Porphyry. And just as Boethius, when he commented on Porphyry, see, Porphyry, once he gives those three questions, says, now these are too difficult to discuss here, so we'll just set those aside. Well, of course, every commentator, beginning with Boethius himself, in effect is saying, well, they're not too tough for me, and he will take them up and give us a solution or an answer to those three questions. And historians have given us portraits of the early Middle Ages in terms of the variations of solution to the so-called problem of universals, which again consists of those three Porphyrian questions. This was fateful. We get rather weary of it after a while because there seems to be not much variation left as the commentaries pile up on one another and become in their turn quasi-authorities for subsequent discussion and the like. In the case of Abelard, who in the 11th century, we have someone who is noted for his independence. He comes out of Normandy to study and comes from a minor noble family and comes to Laon to study. And the story of his early career is the story of his life, in effect. He is a student for minimal period, weeks, let's say, and suddenly he decides he knows more than the teacher. So he sets up his own school as a rival school to that of his teacher and is an electrifying character, very popular teacher, gutsy and brash and all the rest, and infuriates the established professors. He falls ill and returns home and comes back then to Paris where now he decides to study theology and the same pattern is repeated. He listens for a little while and he says, I can do that, and he begins then to rival his master. He is a very exciting figure, Abelard. But in logic, to hook him up to what we've been talking about in terms of the commentaries on Porphyry, we would assume that having produced, as he did, a number of commentaries on the set logical works, including Porphyry, Avalar then decides to write an independent work of logic called the Dialectica, and we turn to it with great expectation. Let us say we become a little weary of the countless discussions of those three questions of Porphyry, and we figure now we're going to get something new. Well, we don't. What we get is pretty much a paraphrase of those same logical work and the logic of Vetus, the logic of Vetus, as it was called, the old logic, the books that had been from time immemorial, the set pieces for medieval education. Abelard doesn't go beyond them in any significant way. His ventures into theology, of course, were the ones that got him into trouble. That plus the fateful occasion when he accepted the task of instructing a young girl, Heloise, in logic. And he did this at the behest of her uncle. And the story is well known. They fell in love. And the uncle was infuriated. 
and he set a gang of people on Abelard and they castrated him. And Abelard then disappeared in shame and entered a monastery. Huh? And we might think that this would be more or less the end of his career, but his monastic career was almost as turbulent as his secular career. Abelard was not a priest, it should be noted. He was a clerk when this episode with Eloise took place, so that he was not under a vow of chastity. But nonetheless, he had clerical status, which was something that all students and teachers had. But it wasn't a matter of being in orders and so on. Well, this was a woeful episode. We shouldn't think it more serious than indeed it was. Eloise is a figure who has fascinated historians and poets and novelists. She remains faithful to Abelard. When he wanted to desert his clerical status and marry her, she refused because she saw that it would be the end of a rather brilliant career. So she more or less sacrifices herself for Abelard. And later when he writes his famous History of My Calamities, which is not always an edifying account of what happened to him, we can balance this with the letters of Heloise, which are of a much more noble and self-effacing and we might say more realistic understanding of what went on. Abelard, we are told, died a very edifying death. He had run afoul of Bernard of Clairvaux and was condemned by a local church council and was on his way to Rome to have the case adjudicated when he fell ill at Cluny and it was there that he died and we have an account of his death which as I say is very edifying. The other figure of the 11th century that we must mention is Anselm, a man I already have said a few things about. He comes from Normandy, he comes to Beck, he joins the famous monastery at Beck and eventually goes on to become Archbishop of Canterbury. He was a teacher in that monastery, but he is noted not for commentaries on works, but for a number of extraordinarily original works. Among them, one that has had a career in philosophy that is scarcely rivaled by any other source and that is his famous Prothlogion, in which, having in an earlier work devised proofs for the existence of God, Anselm tried to come up with an absolutely foolproof argument for the existence of God, and he takes off from a verse of the psalmist, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And in effect, in the Prothlogion, Anselm is arguing that it is indeed foolish to deny the existence of God. You can only do it at the price of incoherence. So with Abelard and Anselm, we reach a kind of high point of the early Middle Ages, two very different types, not at all of the same character and the like, but both of them monks, both of them with rather public careers, but Abelard always a very stormy petrel and Anselm, a very saintly man who had a great influence intellectually and spiritually on many. The 12th century used to be one of the more neglected centuries of the history of thought, the history of Western culture, and we will not exactly pay a lot of attention to it here, except to say that it did have the misfortune of coming before the 13th century, and so much interest has been paid to the thinkers of that century that the 12th century, for a long time, was almost eclipsed. That has been remedied, so that the attention that was paid to Abelard and Anselm in the 11th century has now for quite some time been paid to those of the 12th century. The 12th century is terribly important for a kind of consolidating mood that seemed to grip 
thinkers. We have, for example, a consolidation of scriptural commentaries. There is produced something called the Glossa Ordinaria, which is a running commentary on scriptures for use by those who are reading scripture and seeking to understand it. The Glossa Ordinaria would bring together the thoughts of any number of earlier commentators on scripture so that one puzzled by a text could see what Augustine had said, what Hillary had said, what Ambrose had said, and so forth. And this would enable him to better appreciate and assimilate the scripture. So the Glossa Ordinaria, he had this very useful tool for scripture studies. There was also a consolidation in the law so that canon and civil law were brought together in a code that made it a lot easier to understand what maxims and precepts and edicts were to govern public life in terms of the church and in terms of the secular arm. And then there were works of summary in theology, summary works in theology, most notable of which for its subsequent career, the so-called Sentences of Peter Lombard. Peter Lombard ended up as Bishop of Paris, but he wrote sentences, as he called them, that is, judgments about certain key elements of Christian doctrine. And it's a four-volume work. It's a very extensive work which seeks to set out in a kind of order the main mysteries of the faith. And it's very heavily influenced by St. Augustine. This work will have a career in the 13th century and beyond, which gave it an importance far beyond any of the other summaries that were made of theology that were made in the 12th century. Let us at least draw attention to these three great consolidating works as a sign that matters had reached a point in the 12th century where there was a gathering together of previously scattered and disjointed efforts into these kind of unified forms. What happens in the 12th century, towards the end of the 12th century, that is fateful for subsequent medieval philosophy is the arrival, at first gradual, of translations into Latin of works whose titles might have been known, but which in themselves were not had by the Latin reader. One of the first that comes into circulation is the Ethics of Aristotle. But this will be followed subsequently by a flood of work. And the story of the translation of Aristotle in the West, as Ferdinand von Steinbergen put it in a little book devoted to the subject, is in itself fascinating. The works of Aristotle seem to have passed around the Mediterranean basin through Islam, and Aristotle has an Islamic career that antedates his career in the Christian West by at least a century. And the great Islamic commentators of Arawes and Avicenna, their works too will be translated into Latin. And indeed, this will pose one of the great problems for Aristotelian interpretation in the 13th century. But at places such as Toledo in Spain, where there was the conjunction of Christians, Jews, and Muslims, there was a translation project that was undertaken that brought many of Aristotle's and Arabic thinkers' works into the West. The presence of Arabic words, particularly in mathematics, is explained by this particular root of Aristotle through Islam. A lot of Islamic works came along with it. And indeed, when a work of Aristotle would be translated, let's say the metaphysic, it would be accompanied by an Islamic account or commentary on it. 
So Aristotle comes into the West, comes into Latin, convoyed by Latin translations of Islamic commentators. And as I say, that's not without its importance. But notice now what an exciting moment this is as we move across the border from the 12th into the 13th century. You have what must have seemed like a flood of literature, of works of great depth and profundity and obscurity that had hitherto not been known. And here you had a whole educational system that had built itself up over the centuries through the monastic schools into the cathedral schools and the like. And now the framework of that medieval education, of that liberal arts education, was questioned by the fact that you had all of these writings that didn't have any locus in the divisions of the liberal arts. Where do you put the physics of Aristotle? Where do you put the ethics? of Aristotle? Where do you put the parts of the animal? Where do you put the politics and so forth? Eventually it became clear that the seven liberal arts simply were not an adequate conception of the scope of secular learning. So this influx of Aristotle in effect renders, as it would seem, obsolete medieval education up to that point. It's a tremendous crisis and it is a crisis which is coterminous with the rise of the university. The first documents that we have for the University of Paris, one dates actually to 1200, but in the early years of the 13th century, we have documents that indicate that there is a corporation recognized, first of all, papally, at Paris between the masters and students of Paris. So it's a corporation, it's a legal entity first, and what it does is to gather into one organization the masters and students who were already present in Paris, in the monastic schools, the monastery of saint Genevieve that Abelard was associated with for a time, and with the cathedral school on the Ile de la Cité, the cathedral school of Notre Dame. So that what you had was a consolidation of the efforts of the masters and pupils of these different schools, the school of Saint Victor, for example, which had a tremendous history in the 12th century. These are consolidated into a legal entity, which it's possible to think of on the model of a guild, where people would come as apprentices, in effect, would apprentice themselves to a master, and by dint of a certain kind of training, here listening to lectures and the like, would be credentialed as masters of that particular craft and then could be licensed to go out and practice that craft as their masters had, maybe not in Paris, but somewhere else. So that the organization of study that takes place in the medieval university is something that has influenced higher education right up to our own time. Many of the titles and the like that we use in universities, deans and provosts and the like, are taken from medieval education, the medieval university, and the very notion of a master, the highest degree in philosophy in the Middle Ages would be magister artium, master of the arts. So that when we see the transition from the monastic schools and cathedral schools to the universities, what we see is the same structure just sort of expanded because what these earlier schools had hit upon was a mode of coexistence between the secular and the sacred. The great difference is the conception of the scope of the secular. No longer are the seven liberal arts an adequate portrayal of what the human mind can come to know on its own. 
all of these writings of Aristotle and these commentaries by Islamic writers make it very clear that what had been thought to be an adequate summary of secular learning is just woefully inadequate. So that the whole thing, in one sense, had to be rethought. The whole problem of the relationship between faith and learning, faith and reason, had to be rethought. And it came down, initially at least, to the question, what is the relationship between the thought of Aristotle and the Christian faith? How are we to adjust to that? And many of the disputes and discussions and really curricular decision of the University of Paris have to do with that particular issue. But what is the structure of the university as it emerges? There's first of all a faculty of arts. So that you see they retain this historical association with the liberal arts education. But as the university gets consolidated, the notion of what falls within the faculty of arts expands and the writings of Aristotle, the ethics, gradually becomes part of the curriculum, the metaphysics, and all of these works. So that now philosophy in the full scope that it was understood by Aristotle is in effect covered by the arts. Huh? So the faculty of arts would be the initial, the entry-level college of the University of Paris, and boys would enter that as very young teenagers and would spend, let's say, eight or nine years arriving at the status of magister artium. And when they had achieved that status, they might go on to study in one of three higher faculties, law, medicine, or theology, more likely than not, at Paris. This was the most important faculty at Paris. And then they would start over again and would undertake a curriculum of studies, a course of studies, which was so lengthy that they might be in their early 30s before they were declared to be a master of the sacred page or a master of theology. So it was an extensive kind of training, and it was a way of life. Student life at Paris in the 12th century was a very lively thing. The Latin Quarter, so named because, of course, Latin was the language of education and of scholarship, was the place where many of the monastic schools were located, and that's where the students lived and rioted and the like. And just across the bridge would be the Cathedral School of Notre Dame. So that the location was set, and these young boys would come into this system. They would be resident in various colleges or dorms around the city on the left bank, or they might just take rooms in a private home. Reading about student life in Paris is, in many ways, an astounding thing. We think of people devoting themselves to the life of learning, and perhaps like college students in all subsequent generations, their minds seem to be on just about anything other than the pursuit of truth. At any rate, after the passage through the Arts College, one went on to one of these higher institutions or colleges, and in Paris, as I say, more likely theology. If the arrival of Aristotle and the formation of universities are important elements of any discussion of medieval philosophy or medieval thought after 1200, there is a third factor that was of great importance, and that was the arrival of the friars that is the founding of the Order of St. Francis on the one hand and the founding of the Order of Preachers by St. Dominic on the other. So that here you had now these mendicants, as they were called, beggars, 
very unimpressive, we might say, people as they moved around through the Christian world. St. Francis himself, if you go to Assisi, you'll see the habit that he wore, and it has the aspect of a gunny sack. So the notion of poverty was the great note of the Franciscan order, Lady Poverty, as St. Francis referred to her in his engaging way. But the three vows of the religious life were, of course, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And all monks, all religious members of a religious house, men or women, took those three vows. Secular priests, those who were associated with a bishop, would take the prom make the promise of celibacy, which was of considerably less formal than a vow of chastity. And of course, they didn't take any vow of poverty at all. So there was a great difference between the secular clergy in that regard and, at least in theory, the religious clergy on the other. But the Franciscans and the Dominicans, to a lesser extent, were a rebuke to the religious of their time because they intended to lead these evangelical promises in a much more serious way than religious had up to that time. And consequently, they annoyed a lot of people just by their existence. But it was when they began to move into university that you had a real conflict. It was bad enough that these people were wandering around the streets and begging for their bread and keep and so forth and preaching the gospel. But to have them moving into the university seemed to many of the masters of the university to be a contradiction in terms. I mean, hadn't they turned away from all this sort of thing? And the secular masters, particularly at the University of Paris, were just infuriated by the arrival of the friars. Now, the Dominicans came first. St. Dominic had founded his order in order to counter a heresy in southern France, and he wanted his men to be highly educated so that they could preach the true gospel and respond to difficulties that arose from these heretics in southern France. So he wanted members of his order to be trained, and they arrive in Paris at a very early period in the history of the order and set up shop there in the convent of St. James, as it was called. Couvent Saint-Jacques, which was on the road that began the pilgrimage to St. James in Compostela. But it was there that eventually Thomas Aquinas, Albert the Great, and any number of legendary Dominicans would live, and from there be associated with the University of Paris, because, of course, the University of Paris was not a campus, it was not a set of buildings and so forth, it was this legal entity bound together by governance and by rules of procedure for education and the passing of exams and the conferring of degrees and the like. So it wasn't in any narrow sense, say, in terms of a modern campus. It wasn't a place like that. So the Dominicans would be at their own convent or religious house, and so too the Franciscans, after they had solved a problem within the order as to whether or not they could own any houses, whether that wasn't a violation of the vow of poverty. But eventually, the way Franciscans showed up on the faculty of the University of Paris was that secular masters became Franciscans. So they already had a position, and now they were no longer secular masters, but friars themselves. And there was, as I say, a great deal of dispute about this. I mention this now because two of the figures that we want to concentrate on as emblematic of the 13th century were respectively a Franciscan and a Dominican. 
St. Bonaventure on the one hand and St. Thomas on the other. Very near contemporaries. They both die in 1274, but Bonaventure was born a few years earlier than Thomas. Thomas was born in 1225. They're both Italian, and their intellectual careers are basically played out at the University of Paris, which becomes the heart and soul of Christian theology during the 13th century, largely due to men like these. Now, when Bonaventure and Thomas show up at the University of Paris, that's been there now for, let's say, half a century almost, the problems that were raised by the arrival of Aristotle are beginning to be solved. That is, people are beginning to see a way in which they can adjust to the teachings of Aristotle and see them in a relation which is not necessarily antagonistic to the faith. But this is not a universal understanding. And one way to see the relationship between Bonaventure and St. Thomas is in terms of a different attitude towards Aristotelian philosophy relative to the faith. Bonaventure, although in his commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard aside, I mentioned when we talked briefly about the 12th century that the sentences of Peter Lombard, a summary of theology, would have a subsequent career of note. And indeed they did. In the developing curriculum of the Faculty of Theology, one of the tasks that the fledgling theologian had to perform was to produce a commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard, so that there were two tracks, in effect, for theological education, scripture and the sentences. And one read and commented on scripture, one read and commented on the sentences of Peter Lombard. So Bonaventure and Thomas both did this. We might fancifully call it their doctoral dissertation in theology. And these were multi-volume productions, these commentaries. When we look at Bonaventure's commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard, which would have been fairly early in his university career, we're not conscious of any difficulty or antagonism towards Aristotle questions arise, but they're not deep questions about whether or not Aristotle is useful for the Christian believer in theology and outside of it. But eventually Bonaventure would become very negative towards Aristotle, and this was largely because of a group of masters in the Faculty of Arts who began to speak of a relationship between faith and reason which was very puzzling. And in order to understand it, we have to consider what were called the errors of Aristotle. One of the things that emerged in the 13th century from the initial comparison of Aristotle with Christian doctrine were little lists of these are errors that Aristotle makes. And let's take just three of them. Aristotle maintains that the world had always been in the sense that change itself, the world of change, cannot come to be. So the world is eternal for Aristotle. But for the believer, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. So there is an incompatibility here. Aristotle was wrong. Scripture being right, Aristotle was wrong. Secondly, that there is no personal immortality. This is Aristotle's teaching according to this list of errors. And, of course, Christianity would be nonsense if there weren't a payoff, so to speak, beyond this life in terms of an eternal life, a life beyond. And then thirdly, according to Aristotle, in this list of errors, God is not aware of creation. 
he's too lofty to care what's going on in the world. So he doesn't know, doesn't care about what's going on in the world. And of course, for Christians, his eye is on the sparrow. And God's providential governance of the world is part and parcel of Christian belief. Anyway, you had these little lists of errors on the part of Aristotle, or discrepancies, let's say, between Aristotelian doctrine, or at least apparent discrepancies, between Aristotelian doctrine and Christian doctrine. Now, the group of young masters in the Arts College came to be labeled the Latin Averroists. Von Steinbergen, whom I mentioned, liked to call them heterodox Aristotelian. But what they tended to suggest was this, at least in the minds of their critics. They wanted to say, well, look, in philosophy, it's true enough that the world is eternal, but in belief or in Christianity, the world is not eternal. And this is an extraordinary position. And as the result of this kind of championing of Aristotle, Bonaventure, who had by this time been elected master general of the Franciscan order, but was resident in Paris, became increasingly alarmed by the way in which people were interpreting and using Aristotle. And in several series of his sermons on the gifts of the Holy Ghost, for example, and on the Ten Commandments, these are Lenten sermons that he gives in Paris, the allusions are found to what's going on in the university and his own increasing negative attitude towards it. And in this, he differs remarkably from St. Thomas. St. Thomas, from early to late, is convinced that there is a fundamental compatibility between Aristotelian philosophy and Christian doctrine. Indeed, when we think of Thomas Aquinas, we think precisely of that kind of claim and his paying off on it in his major work. So he does not see this fundamental discrepancy. And in order to understand how he could have a position different from that of Bonaventure, we have to understand how Thomas dealt with the so-called errors of Aristotle. And I'll say a few things about that, but I want to devote the next lecture principally to Thomas Aquinas because he is, by common consent, the most important figure of the Middle Ages. But for now, let's point to another kind of distinction or difference between Bonaventure and St. Thomas Aquinas. And that has to do with their different attitudes towards the De Magistro, the work on the teacher of St. Augustine, that dialogue between him and his son at Casiciaco. It should be mentioned that Augustine shows a flare of paternal pride when he tells us that what he's attributing to his son in that dialogue, he really said. So he was a very bright boy. He died young, unfortunately, but Augustine was obviously very proud of him and thought, it necessary or useful to point out that he indeed did carry on this conversation at the level that it's come down to it. That dialogue, remember, makes as the centerpiece of its explanation of learning that Christ the teacher teaches within. We have but one teacher, Christ. And the Aristotelian view is what this suggests is that knowledge kind of comes from above and it comes into the soul from above and then we look out at the world and somehow we're able to see the world in terms of this knowledge that we have from a source other than the world. As opposed to what? As opposed to what we saw in an earlier lecture as the difference between Aristotle and Plato in this regard. 
Aristotle rejects as explainers of knowledge a realm of ideal entities subsisting separate from the world around us. So consequently, he has to explain intellectual knowledge otherwise. And he does it by suggesting that we have a capacity, what he calls the agent intellect, which when we have gathered together images on the basis of our experience of the things around us, the agent intellect is our capacity to grasp what it is that those individuals or individuals have in common, to grasp their nature or essence. And this is what is expressed in the definition. So what Aristotle is suggesting is this, we abstract from the singulars of our sense experience what they have in common, their nature or essence, for example. And that has no existence as a unit apart from our thinking. It is a product of human thinking, not the content of it, but its existence as a concept. Content of the concept, of course, expresses what these individuals really are, what they have in common. But as a unit relating to these many individuals, we can't explain that relationship without bringing in human intellection. So that fraction is the key in our ability to grasp the natures of things. Now, given for Aristotle, we do it, we can do it, we must be able to do it because we do do it. So what he is doing is explaining what happens, not trying to create a machinery and then say this will produce some hitherto unheard of episode. He's explaining what goes on in the fact that from our experience of a number of German shepherds, we have a notion of what a German shepherd is. And it's a workaday notion, it might not be a fully scientific notion, but in virtue of that, we are able to identify and run when we see a German shepherd. But we don't think that this concept that we have is a sign of some entity other than individual German shepherds that we have or will encounter. For the Aristotelian, and Thomas is an Aristotelian, ordinary cognitive equipment, what we naturally possess, is the explanation of what we naturally do. Okay. So we don't have to invoke anything like an illumination from above. Bonaventure, on the other hand, was far more struck by the importance of this sort of downward movement that the term illumination suggests. And he actually makes this kind of distinction. He would say, well, okay, abstraction is okay when you're trying to talk about our knowledge of the things around us. But how is that ever going to account for our knowledge of immaterial things? How can we abstract from material things immateriality? We can't do it, the suggestion is. Therefore, in the area of metaphysics, Bonaventure says, illumination holds sway, whereas in the realm of philosophy of nature, abstraction would. And consequently, he will say, Plato is our master in metaphysics, and Aristotle is our master in natural science. So that what Bonaventure ends up with is acceptance of both illumination and abstraction, but he allocates them to different realms of objects. Now there is a sense in which Thomas Aquinas does something quite similar. Thomas Aquinas has a disputed question, de magistro. It's question 11 of the collection of disputed questions brought together under the title of On Truth. And in it, Thomas recalls 
the doctrine of St. Augustine's De Magistro, and of course he's not going to disagree with it. He thinks it's absolutely right. And he also is going to recall the doctrine of Aristotle on abstraction, with which he agrees, and he thinks it's absolutely right. So the question is, how will he put together illumination and abstraction? He does it in a way quite different from the way in which Bonaventure did it. What Thomas will draw attention to is the fact that Aristotle himself, in talking about the role of the agent intellect, speaks of it as a phos, as a light. This is the metaphor. The agent intellect is a light which illumines the images, the sense images, and enables us to grasp the nature or essence or common properties of these singular things. So what Thomas does is to appropriate the language of illumination to the abstractive account of human knowledge. Then he goes on, as Augustine eventually would, and as of course St. Bonaventure would, to talk about this capacity that we have, this inner light that we have, in terms of our being made in the image and likeness of God. So that this Asian intellect is a kind of scintilla divinitatis, a kind of spark of divinity in us. Thomas is as comfortable with that language as any other Christian theologian, but he doesn't think that it offers an alternative account of natural understanding. Abstraction is sufficient for that. But that, of course, puts off a problem of great importance that will return with a vengeance with Duns Scotus. And that is, how is it that we can have concepts which are common to physical objects and to God if abstraction is all that we have? So the relationship between Bonaventure and Thomas, if we reduce it to their different attitudes towards Aristotle, which is not unfair, Aristotle playing so significant a role in the century in which they live, we would have two things. On the one hand, a kind of wariness in the use of Aristotle on the part of Bonaventure triggered off by the phenomenon of Latin averroism among certain masters of arts at the University of Paris. Thomas, on the other hand, is always going to argue that Aristotle is compatible with Christian doctrine. Secondly, in terms of the relationship between Bonaventure and Thomas and St. Augustine, this raises another kind of issue with respect to Aristotelian abstraction, which the two men handle in the two in quite different ways, as I've already indicated. So what Thomas's more ironic attitude towards Aristotle, the difficulty it poses for us, and we're going to have to put these questions to him, how can you say that the thought of Aristotle is compatible with Christianity when you consider the list of errors of Aristotle, those three at least that I mentioned earlier, isn't this a case of a pretty clear contradiction between what is claimed to be known and what you believe? And like Bonaventure, there is an initial kind of reaction that Thomas as a believer will take to a philosophical proposal. And it is this, because he is a believer, he is accepting as true the content of the faith. He's giving his assent to it as truth, as guaranteed by the authority of God himself. So that when he is confronted with a philosophical proposition, which is in conflict with what he believes, he knows on that very basis that it's false. Huh? So the first step would be anything that is in conflict with revealed truth is false. 
The only way you could avoid that is saying, well, I'm no longer going to believe these things and I'm going to accept this knowledge claim. But if you're confronted with a contradiction, obviously one side of that contradiction has to be true and the other false. It can't be simultaneously true that the world had a beginning in time and the world did not have a beginning in time. You can't maintain both of those propositions. This is what captures, let us say, Thomas's attention when he is confronted with Latin Averroism, as he is during his second professoriate at the University of Paris. And in two little polemical works, one on the eternity of the world and another on the uniqueness of intellect, he will argue against what he takes to be the claim that it is possible for the believer to accept as true the contradictory opposite of what he believes, saying that, well, that's just philosophy, and this is faith, and the contradiction somehow doesn't travel across the gap between faith and reason. For Thomas, this was an abomination, because if there is something in direct conflict with the faith that is true, then, of course, that means that what has been revealed is false. And then what one is saying, he's making the impious claim that God has proposed for our acceptance as true what we know to be false. Huh? So faith would be an absurdity rather than what it is, the fulfillment of the mind's innate desire for truth. So Thomas was shocked by this suggestion that you could simultaneously hold contradictories, not simply because of the logical absurdity of it, but because the religious impiousness of it again, portraying God as setting forth for our acceptance as true what we could know to be false. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.